Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in urban planning and architecture more accessible. Today we'll talk about participatory planning, why it's relevant, its benefits, as well as its potential risks and obstacles. I'm Matthias. And I'm Katharina. Let's talk about cities. We like to start with definitions. So Katarina, how about you give us a definition of what participatory planning is? Yeah, um, I'd love to. I'm not a huge fan of reading out the Wikipedia definition, but maybe I can start with it. Wikipedia defines participatory planning as, and now I'm quoting, um, an urban planning paradigm that emphasizes involving the entire community in the strategic and management processes of urban planning or community-level planning processes, urban or rural. And then it goes on, but I think that kind of gives a good overview. And also, if you know the word participatory and planning, I think you can imagine what it's all about. Yeah. But um, can we just... I'd, I'd like to talk about why participation in planning in general is considered relevant and maybe take the chance to actually look back a bit in planning history mm -hmm. um, how it's been that it's not always been like it is now because it feels like um, participation in planning processes nowadays is a must and maybe we can kind of elaborate on how it's been before and that it's not always been the case like that yeah so let's start with the the, the basic um forms of participation as, as they've existed for the longest time. Um, there are in most democratic countries um, forms of participation embedded within the official planning processes. Uh, and that's been the case, depending on the country, for about 70 or 80 years. So just before the Second World War or just after. Um, and, and those uh, forms of participation usually take the form of Uh, consultation processes, which means that when a plan has been developed by the municipality, then it's um, displayed to the public, uh, either traditionally in in the municipal offices or or in the mayor's office. Then, when when they when the plans zoning plans, for example, have been displayed, then uh, people with an interest so. Um, be it organizations that are in some way affected by the plan or citizens who are affected by it can give their opinions on it. And then the plan can either be changed based on those views that have been been um, presented or it can uh, go through anyway. Um, so that's a particular uh, sort of level of participation and we'll get to the levels of participation because mm -hmm. there are different definitions of that and there are dif different methods of participation a lot of different ones that in roughly the last 60 years have been developed and we won't go through all of those we will just try to establish a sort of theoretical foundation for for how to understand and talk about participation in this yeah. episode 
but maybe um yeah i also don't i agree that i don't think that we can have time to to go through all of them but maybe you can um quickly go over how it's been how it's been uh in the 40s or so um how the common planning path was yeah, well, the, the change that has been made, and it's not really true to say that a change has been made uh, as such as, as a finished transformation of the, the process of planning. But traditionally, to me, I, I, I would uh, connect the emergence of participatory planning with the movement from uh, modernity to postmodernity. And uh, with that, I mean modernity in the sense of the time period since the enlightenment in which rationality um, has been the supreme ruler it, it's been one of the highest values and that has led to a situation where knowledge in the rational sense is what gives authority and power to someone and that means that in planning for example as in many other spheres experts have a lot of power mm -hmm. and you can see that as well in 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 planning how it's for a long time been about the lone genius architect or planner um sort of making a master plan yeah. as, as as the word also implies that it's a master at work and then also sorry to interrupt but then also really this top-down view as opposed to what we're craving for now bottom up yeah, and exactly, actually yeah. working with the people but then what what is being um criticized from back then is also that as you say this lonesome planner that has this that knows it all kind of and yeah. he looks up uh, from bird's eye perspective or yeah. like top down exactly and, 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 and not only that there's the process and, and sort of the power relation of that but also the results that come from that because obviously modernity or in, in in planning and architectural terms modernism had ideas or, or birthed ideas such as form follows function or uh, Le Corbusier's idea that cities and buildings are like machines and yeah. should be designed and optimized like machines and this leads to a certain aesthetic and focus on on function but that was then criticized in a reflection on uh, both this process and and the values within the process and also the power relations and actually one of the most influential critics was Jane Jacobs who walked around the streets of New York and and wrote about how complex the communities are and how that uh, has to take more place the complexity of the communities and also their knowledge of their surroundings and their everyday lives and how that has to matter more in planning exactly and she, but she wasn't really respected as she was not an educated planner right so that then she was a woman and it was in the 60s she mm -hmm. she wrote the book the death and life of yeah. um of america great american cities uh in 1961 and um, yeah wasn't an educated planner and she was a woman in the 60s so um for that reason but also because she was very critical she really attacked people like Le Corbusier and Robert Moses who was the the chief planner of New York at the time and therefore I think planners took it as an attack on their authority mm. and therefore she was also very strongly discredited 
shall we say. But so that was one of the first one. And then uh, Christopher Alexander in his 1965 book, uh, A City is Not a Tree, um, looked at this understanding of the city as... Um, he says a tree because to him the the modernistic understanding of of a city was one in which there are several different parts with their own function and they are linked but they are not interlinked Mm -hmm. in the idea of a tree you have the main trunk and then you have the branches going out and then smaller branches from these branches but these small branches connected to the trunk are not connected between one another Mm -hmm. except through the trunk Mm -hmm. so actually they become isolated and his point was that a city uh, and the systems of a city are more like a lattice so where you have uh, connections going crisscrossing and going through in a very complex way and his further point about this was that such a complex system cannot be understood by a lone genius or or by a small group of experts mm-hmm. it really requires a lot of knowledge in, in, input, also, yeah, yeah input informal input and and a more sort of flexible um understanding of knowledge yeah also i think we should maybe say i don't know if that is clear that um if you now you said the tree um that or that he said that 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 doesn't work with, with when the branches are not interconnected. I think back at that time, when you think about someone planning top down um, and then maybe drawing those very straight lines, those are usually for the cars and um, they're quite simple and make a lot of sense from looking at the plan from above. But then when you're actually on the street and you, you see those dimensions that are... Um, not very human friendly and not very nice to, or maybe not very interesting to walk around, Mm -hmm. then um, you might understand that this creates totally different neighborhoods and um, strongly influences, of course, how people move around. And then this also plays a role. So there's so many things attached to that, that maybe might not be visible um, at the first place, when talking about this yeah. uh, problematic yeah. or, or exactly yeah. and that and that was the critique basically from from alexander was more towards the process and from jane jacobs was was more about who was involved but they both um, um sort of meant that um that's not a good way to do it yeah basically and then there's uh, they criticize uh, the outcome basically, but yeah, for different yeah. well and the process. But yeah. then there's uh, Henri Lefebvre, who um, um, Henri Lefebvre, <laughs> Henri Lefebvre, <laughs> Lefebvre, yeah, yeah. So then there was uh, Henri Lefebvre, who uh, was a French professor and uh, philosopher and, and sociologist, and he approached the planning of cities and wider yet what he called the production of space as a matter of power and control first and foremost and he uh, says that space is a social construction which itself shapes social practice and perception and so there's a back and forth relationship there Mm -hmm. the social constructions that is space shapes the social practice and perception and the social practice and perception then uh, shapes, shapes the space and uh, he was also critical to capitalism and he argued that within capitalism 
Um, the spaces produced are based on exchange value over use value. Um, it, it's a symptom of commodification. And therefore, they will always reproduce capitalist social relations of, of production, meaning those with power will create spaces that keep them in power. So that just perpetuates a hierarchical power structure and basically the hegemonic domination of of the thoughts and actions of citizens. Because mm -hmm. to Lefebvre, uh, the everyday life was very important, meaning not just when you're at work or, or you, the overall narrative of your life and, and, and what you do, um, but your everyday life, how you um, make very small decisions within your day. Mm -hmm. And he meant that that has to uh, be reflected in the city. There has to be a synthesis, he called it, mm -hmm. between everyday life and the city. And for that to happen, the citizen, every citizen, has a fundamental right to the city. Now, the right to the city has been understood and presented as the right to use the city or to, to be in and act in the city, mm -hmm. to access The, the, the urban resources in the city. But really what I think uh, Lefebvre meant was the right to the city is that, but it's more, it's also a right to, to participate in the production of, of the city, mm -hmm. um, in the production of space. And so that's what we'll look at after we presented the, the, the topic of participatory planning. It's, you know, it can go very deep in what that really means so yeah. looking at at that definition of the right to the city and production of space is it really enough with a sort of consultation where you can give your view on a plan that has already been designed that's kind of the the, the questions uh, i yeah i completely agree and i i think First of all, I think it's nice that you kind of walk this through those milestones now because they maybe some of them happen at the same time or or close to each other. But um, as you said before, also, this was not a quick, rapid change. Rather, few people were questioning how it's been done and then questioning it more and more. And then um, it kind of changed over a quite long period of time yeah exactly into what it is today i mean all those texts were written in the 60s jane jacobs book was 61 yeah um uh, christopher alexander's in 65 and lefebvre's in 68 and I mean, 68 everyone knows and 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 the student revolts and in france where he he um lived And the 60s in general were a time where power structures were being questioned. So it was, all of that was within a greater context also outside of planning yeah. uh, of, of questioning power structures. So that's That's the context. And then there's Sherry Arnstein, who um, um, published an essay in 1961 called A Ladder of Citizen Participation. And in that she presented a model which helps understand the different degrees, the mm -hmm. different levels, or actually, therefore, the metaphor of a ladder rungs um, of participation. And so, so that starts to help the analysis um, that has become through those aforementioned three books, um, really a pertinent topic, but it makes it a bit more easy to understand which different degrees 
or levels of there participation are. are there and how can they be used in a constructive sense but also how can they be abused mm-hmm. by power holders yeah because i think that is kind of where we are today um it's a bit like the term sustainability that um could we say social washing or i don't know it it feels like window dressing i think is the (laughs) okay apparently there's a term for it that whenever you have participated in a planning process or whatever process really it seems like um it's kind of bulletproof or politicians would like to think that um, because they can always say, well, we have asked the people and we have um, talked to them. And then, you know, yeah, you did. But if you didn't take them seriously, then what's the point really? Exactly. But I think before going into that, um, I would kind of go back to why participation is relevant, because I think you have touched upon that quite a lot now uh, when walking us through the history As you said, there was this one oftentimes powerful man that was deciding. And I think that is kind of the whole point of participation that, yeah, we as planners or architects, landscape architects, get educated to look through different lenses and try to think about, okay, how would that work for a person sitting in a wheelchair, for example? However, there are some things that If you haven't lived it, maybe you don't have the, or Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure you don't have the same perception. And um, therefore, if, for example, you have uh, a park that is specifically designed for blind people, then I would like to see someone who actually is blind involved in the planning process because they um, most certainly know what is needed for them. And that's kind of my point also that, Um, If you only have a certain group of people within the planning committee or the decision makers, it's quite obvious that a certain output will be there. So that's a look at why it's relevant based on the outcome. And what I was talking about was rather um, uh, a look behind that and and, and sort of more fundamental reasons for, for why it's needed. right? With the right to the city, you mean? Yes, for example, and the power relations involved. So, so, but you can look at it from from different ways, obviously, and argue um, from different directions. I think that that's the way to do it because none of them is right or true. There's no such thing. But but there, the the important thing I think is that there's a discussion and um, you know a will to improve uh, both the outcomes, but also the processes and the level of involvement of the public the, the basically the transparency and the the democracy yeah um and precisely this discussion i believe is important because a lot of participation or, or, or a lot of participatory methods or or processes aim at consensus and um, that's another risk that i would mention that if you always look to to compromise or find a consensus that everyone agrees with, then it's quite likely that something is being pushed under the rug, namely contentious perspectives and conflicts, which are, I believe, something that, that is important not to hide. Mm. And actually, if we, we start to um, be a bit critical about what can go wrong in planning processes, I think it is also 
quite a challenge when oftentimes there's only a certain group of people being interested or that maybe only a certain group of people that are invited in a participatory planning process are actually coming. And that could be because they don't have time or maybe they don't have um, interest or maybe uh, lacking skills. Like it could be whatever, but oftentimes the reality is that those planning processes or those participatory workshops or whatever it is, is often on a Wednesday at 3 p.m. And then Mm -hmm. a lot of people work there. And or maybe if they don't, they don't want to spend their time in some workshop room. So I think... Exactly. Even within involvement, there's exclusion, basically. It's it's the same as we talked about in the episode about self-initiated housing, where a lot of those uh, Baugruppen, you know, in the end are actually only available to certain demographics precisely and to others not i also think oftentimes n- nowadays i see more and more visualization tools being um, involved in the participatory planning process that require certain digital skills that many might not have and i think that's also a that could be a barrier for many people i mean still there's it's nice to you know for example if you're trying to redo a street and you show the people how it could look like with more trees or with a different um, pavement or whatever. Um, and then maybe you'll have a, a augmented reality for that or you use an augmented reality for that to show how it could be. Maybe some people are completely overwhelmed with that. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's just really hard to find a way that works for all those different people and um, yeah, I mean you're not gonna and so and, and, I, and, and I think that that's the issue I have with uh, a focus on consensus because you're not going to be able to cover all the bases and so therefore it first of all it's important to acknowledge that and not uh, use a rhetoric of actually ticking all the boxes just mm. because it looks or or sounds good Mm. you have to acknowledge that there in in any process there are flaws and then try to do your best and so then there will be you know best practices of of examples that work really well and then there will be other um, methods that perhaps don't work so well but they will be very neatly packaged and sold basically as Mm. as working well because it benefits someone somewhere in the process Mm. that it's done in in that way yeah and i think that's also um important to to talk about that when a participatory process is done properly it actually can be a lot more socially sustainable in that sense that people are actually on board with what you're doing because um and maybe they also have a sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. Now I'm Absolutely, thinking yeah. about my revitalization of the street example again. And maybe, you know, you um, set up some ca- some kind of care plan for planters that you've put there and then people can, can help out with that. And then maybe they feel some kind of ownership about that and try to take care. And I think that if you're involving people in such a sense and actually talking to them what they want, um, there's a whole different kind of feeling within those uh, micro neighborhoods then. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore also a lot more sustainable. So I think if it's done properly, it 
it really helps the whole process and um, yeah, just makes it a lot more valuable for everyone. Mm-hmm. So that's in the perfect world when when everything works out. But as we said before, there are also uh, obstacles um, to participatory planning. And before I mentioned lack of skill set from the citizens, but actually it could also be from the people, from the planners, because they just do that to participate, but don't really know how. So I think that could also be an obstacle. Mm -hmm. And um, what I often find is lack of transparency, because oftentimes you you write down wishes on some post-its, but you don't know what's going to happen with that. Absolutely, yeah. And then, well, everyone writes more trees and... (laughs) I don't know, more seating area, but it feels like oftentimes I think um, might become very frustrating for people if they don't know in what way their opinions are being taken into account. Mm -hmm. And that holds the risk of them not participating in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that's and there are even greater risks to that, namely that if you don't feel that your input that you do give is valued then then that uh, sort of uh, weakens the foundation of democracy in general exactly and not just like the question thing. of if you will actually participate again yeah um but um, there are lots of examples like that and uh, i'd really like to to recommend that uh, any listener looks up that essay um a ladder of citizen participation from sherry Einstein, because uh, she also gives very good explanations of well, her model and for each of these eight levels that she presents um, from basically empty rituals mm. uh, to uh, citizen control yeah. in, in the last uh, stage. And she also gives examples of, of how those may be used or abused by and power holders. Now, I wonder, do you know any example where you feel like citizens actually were in control? Yeah, actually, I heard about one today, which I thought was quite a, a large degree of control. There's one, my, my, I think my favorite uh, example is uh, uh, Christiania in, mm-hmm. in Copenhagen, which is uh, what's basically called a, a free town. Mm. Um, and it came out of uh, an occupation of an area in, in Copenhagen. And obviously, there have been many occupations. And in some other cases, I think as well, it's in the end led to... Uh, a sort of um, those occupations being made official. For example, we heard recently about this example in Amsterdam of uh, a former squatter's mm. um, house that was then turned into student, with housing. student yeah. housing with the help of the municipality. Um, but anyway, in, in Christiane, it came out of a struggle with squatters uh, taking over the area in the 70s, I think. And uh, there were um, struggles and the police tried to clear it. But over time... Uh, the municipality and the authorities had to realize that they couldn't keep going uh, on in, in that um, antagonistic way. So they had to start to tolerate that that area is in fact there and has some degree of of um, citizen control. Um, but then I also heard about an example today about um, a skate park here in Malmö where, where we live mm-hmm. um, in Stapelbeds Parken, 
where um, Malmö has a subculture of, of skaters that's quite large and, and uh, well known and um, there were there was a, an association of skaters who wanted a new place to skate so they had their minds on on a place outside the city on the periphery um, but then during the planning of uh, a park in in Westerhamden, uh, a larger d- development area um, they were taken in and, and offered the chance to um, to build a skate park there. And the point is that it was in the end financed by the municipality, mm-hmm. but the members of the skaters association, so the skaters themselves, both decided what should be built and how it should be built and then actually uh, literally built it with their own hands. Crazy. So I think that's a really nice example. And then the upkeep of that has been... Um, uh, continuously financed by the municipality mm-hmm. and I think that's a really nice example and it's very like like w- whenever I go besides that there's super many people yeah. both uh, children and adults yeah and it's also led to the, the, the success of that project has led to um, a further project the park is called Stoppelbetsparken and then there's a, an association called uh, Stoppel. Uh, that are then in a building so it's become like a culture association yeah. uh, kind of recreating that that same model just before i think you i know that you want to talk about super Chilean, mm. right but i think before what i want to say also is that when it's such a successful process um you you almost have like um yeah many representatives of that and and they're just proud of their projects and mm-hmm. they talk about to friends and and family and um yeah it's it's almost like little testimonials or something for a project in a good way though and i think um that community engagement if you actually you know also give the money to 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 do stuff then um it can work out really nicely mm-hmm. for everyone Uh, And that's exactly... Of course, that's another obstacle oftentimes that there's a lack of money. So so then uh, you can't even start. Yeah. Um, And often, and I think that is um, one last thing that I want to say about obstacles is, um, and that might be an unpopular opinion, but I think that you also have to be careful as a planner to not lose your um, role as an expert in the sense that it's very important and and valuable to to work together with citizens and the community because they just have a huge knowledge um, about the site maybe or um, a certain topic. But also, I think one should not blindly do whatever the community wants because um, I found myself in participatory processes where a lot of people owning shops, for example, participated in. Mm-hmm. And then all they said in this whole workshop was that they didn't want to get rid of any parking spots because they're afraid that it might um, damage their business because less people then come to their shops. Mm-hmm. And then at least what what we learned from, from stu- or I learned in my studies was that there's many examples of streets being turned into pedestrian streets and it actually helps the local shops a lot because people like to walk around and stay there longer and so on. So citizens 
also lack a certain kind of planning knowledge. And I think it's also okay to know or it's important to know when to involve and then base your decisions on that. Well, yeah, that's a really good example because um, there are several ways to look at that. One would be, well, hey, if you if you invite the people to, to give you their views, then even if they don't, they're not in accordance with yours based on what you've learned, should you then discard them or, or is there sort of a, an imperative to, to take them on board anyway? Mm. Yeah. But that depends entirely on the model, of course. And then the other thing I think is that um, in such a case, then it might be necessary to to have this dialogue with them and uh, not just to discard their views, but to say, well, actually, your goal is to have more uh, revenue for your business. And here, let me show you the studies and the other examples, because examples can be very powerful, uh, where actually getting rid of the parking spots has led to a higher revenue. Mm and basically make a promise of higher revenue. And I'm, I'm quite sure that that then will convince them to go with that. So, I, you know, um, it's for sure learning from each other. Yeah. Um, but go on, t t tell us about Super Shilin. I get to talk about Super Shilin. Super. Very <laughs> nice. Um, well, we've been there a couple of times and I think it's also very well known. We've, we see it oftentimes on social media being shared. These It's very co colorful. It's very striking visually. It's kind of two thirds square and one third park in Copenhagen in Denmark. And it was designed by big Bjarke Engels group, um, Topotec One from Berlin and the Danish art collective Superflex. And it's located in a multicultural district called Nörebro. And uh, just next to this park or square, there's a neighborhood designated by the Danish government as a ghetto. Uh, maybe you've heard about how they designate areas as ghettos and, and then try to get at them. So they've identified there an issue with integration of, um, of migrants to Denmark within the Danish society. And so for this project, um, Superflex asked people living in the area that represent over 50 different countries, uh, which objects they would like to have in the park rather than the normal uh, street and park furniture. And uh, so that was their idea of, of participation that would reflect um, the identity of the very multicultural diverse area. That, that they were planning in. And so that led to over 100 objects from these more than 50 countries. And they are either from the respondent's country of origin or from some, somewhere where they have traveled to. And Can you uh, maybe say some examples? Yeah, there's like a donut sign from the US, a dentist sign from Qatar. There's a basketball mm -hmm. hoop from Somalia, a fountain from Morocco, mm -hmm. palm trees from China, a trash can from Liverpool. Stuff like that. And then Superflex also employed a process which they call extreme participation. So that sounds very interesting. What's that? That that means that Superflex traveled with five groups to five different countries. And from each country, they retrieved an object from there to bring to Superchilion to the project and place it there. And for example, there's soil from Palestine. So in the park part of Superchilion, there's kind of a, a grassy hill or a knoll and uh, a part of it is kind of sandy and there's the soil from palestine so that might 
sound really nice. Like here, the identity and diversity is being represented. But honestly, to me, it's, it's also a bit kitschy. You know, it reminds me with all these different artifacts from different countries taken out of their context. It reminds me of the strip in, in Las Vegas with, you know, the Eiffel Tower and uh, pyramids and so on. I have to say, I think that's nice. Yeah. Uh, every time I hear the, you know, um, where you press for the traffic light, yeah. it's the same as in Vienna and it al always makes me feel a bit more at home somehow. So, okay. but I, yeah, I also understand what you mean by kitsch, but go on. I mean, I think it is very kitsch and there we go back uh, to me, um, to, to this um, switch from modernity to, to post-modernity because then it becomes all about images. So it's not about... Um, how you use this park and how you live your life as uh, an immigrant in Denmark or actually your identity this, going back to the everyday, everyday life of Lefebvre uh, it's, it's just objects it's very Instagrammable yeah, and, and it's kind of images claiming to represent something much deeper mm. um, but, but there's another aspect to the story of Superchilean as well which is that this rhetoric, you know, extreme participation um, sounds fantastic. But then th the will was to move away from the municipal consultations that are an established tool. Uh, so with this extreme participation. But there were already citizens initiatives in that area before the park was, was even designed. So there were already uh, bottom-up movements that wanted to change things and they were just ignored by the municipality. Uh, so that's what I meant earlier with kind of sweeping things under a rug uh, where there are conflicts and differing ideas. And then you kind of take something where you claim to have found consensus and mm -hmm. present it as uh, a panacea, you know, a cure for all. And um, the next thing is that the project was in the end funded by a private organization. So mm -hmm. it's not funded by the city. It doesn't, it, it's in that sense not coming from uh, you know a public initiative uh, it was funded by a private organization called uh, Real Dania that are very powerful in Denmark um, they have a lot of money and they they create projects and, and basically have become almost a parallel uh, structure to the to the municipal authority in, on planning and uh, they obviously, being the funders, could decide what happens and what doesn't happen. So mm. if something was proposed that wasn't to their liking, they could just say, no, we're not going to fund it then. Right. So the next thing is that um, um, these citizens that participated and gave their wishes for the objects were selected. So it wasn't an open call mm -hmm. for inhabitants of the district to, to participate participate but it was a select group a closed group mm -hmm. so i don't know how you get extreme participation from that how do you really. know do you know how they've been selected yeah there had been um um, um like consultation groups already mm -hmm. uh, working with the municipality in the area but not these citizens initiatives but consultation groups mm -hmm. and so from these consultation groups people who already had worked with the municipality were selected to to give their wishes mm -hmm. um so my my point is that there actually isn't an empowering moment in this process 
to me, it's really uh, a sort of uh, representation of an empowering moment that when you look beyond it, actually isn't actually isn't. So um, also basic things like they were wishing for trees um, or like shade, <laughs> but there's yeah, yeah exactly. That's, trees, that's suppo right? supposedly as well. I mean, most people wanted a park, but as I said, it's two thirds square and one third park yeah. and it gets very hot in summer, for example. And the park part also doesn't have very many trees or so it's not mm. very green either. There have been issues with, with, with the materials used and so on, but I think it's not really necessary to, to get into that right now because the issue is of the participation and how that's been sold mm. um, you know as a process and as an outcome but actually it's a privatization of not just public space but the production of space so uh, if we go back to Lefebvre again instead of the production instead of citizens being involved in the production of space it's not even anymore the municipality which is the democratic representation of the citizens but uh, actually, but actually, private, private organization. Mm -hmm. So it's a privatization of the product production of space, and I think that's something to view very critically and very critically. You should also view, I think, how the project has been represented in architectural journals and mm -hmm. on social media, because it's quite clear that this strategy has worked. It's being sold as a fantastic example of participation and of urban design. Mm -hmm. And uh, furthermore, something we haven't even mentioned is that the, the, this park has led to not only this park, but in no small part, this park has led to the gentrification of the area, which you know was a diverse, cheap area and increasingly is getting uh, quite unaffordable. Mm -hmm. So to me, you have all the hallmarks of, of a hostile uh, process and a hostile project mm -hmm. being sold as something good for the people. Yeah. It's almost like, um, you know, old slum clearing projects in the US. Very true. <laughs> and I think you could uh, rent on <laughs> for um, quite could, a lot of time. I could, but I don't mean time. to rent. And that's I why know. I also wanted to mention that the, the skate park. There's another example, actually, that I wanted to mention just to end on a positive note. Um, Let's do that and then we can wrap up. So Go there's ahead. a Jubileumsparken in, in, in Gothenburg, which was an example of where it was already decided that a former harbor area in Gothenburg was to be redeveloped. Mm. And there was uh, a general plan already established, but it was quite abstract. And uh, in that plan was an area earmarked for a park. So um, before the development really got going or, or took place, um, the municipality of Gothenburg wanted to try a new method, namely um, to, to work with prototypes of um, um, structures for public activities. So it's not entirely new, but this idea of, of um, starting to create the identity of an area before it's developed mm -hmm. so that there's not a clean slate and it's not just um, sort of uh, impersonal uh, development and, and speculation. So then uh, what they did was they had a lot of workshops, open calls for people to, to um, take part and uh, they could wish for what they wanted to have. And then 
in the case of a public sauna, for example, yeah. um, the, the Berlin firm uh, Raumlabor was invited to design it. And in other cases, they, they through these workshops, could take part in the designing and, and again, the literal building uh, themselves. So that, I think, is a really nice example because it's kind of a, a very open um, uh, method of participation. But I think that, too, can be criticized because then the question is, again, who actually comes to these workshops and, and whose ideas end up being replicated? And furthermore, that particular method of trying to uh, create an identity for an area before you develop it can also be viewed as quite a cynical attempt to raise the value of what you then develop. So you actually use the energy and time and creativity of citizens to raise the value of the area, which means that when it's finally built and developed around what you've done in public space, the people living there and being able to take part will not be the same ones that that actually helped develop it. Depends. I mean, you Jubileums Parking and the sauna there is for free, right? Yeah, yeah, of course it depends. So, but, but then the yeah, question is, I, who will go there when it's built up and it's rather a residential area? True. And I, I didn't but mean I, to say that that's definitely the case or no. that that will happen or, or has to happen. But I'm saying that there's a risk. Yeah. So that even such um, actually seemingly a positive example of participation, again, has to be viewed critically. I think that's the 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 final point you you know in a way to see always who is involved who has the possibility to be involved and uh, with what aim um and and to which degree does that involvement actually end up in the decision making yeah. as well so it also to wrap up it it also creates a lot of skills from the people planning and and like leading those workshops because yeah um yeah there's it's a really fine line how to how to do this properly and i guess there's also not one right way but um as you said one has to be critical about it and there are lots of dangers thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode and we're We're, as always, very happy about uh, any feedback or comments or questions you have. Let's talk about cities. Cities.